sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Haig. Sitting in for Rob today, my father, Tim Haig. How's it going, Dad? Hey, um, I'm alive and I'm well and I'm pretty good. Yeah, according to, uh, according to my Facebook feed and all my friends in there, apparently America is on fire and burning right now. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but we're doing good over here. Uh, that's the extent of my uh, of my political insight that I will give for uh, the day. Uh, yeah. So, what up and shalom to everybody out there and er- everybody in the chat room. It's great to see everybody there. And apparently everybody in Canada is freaking out too, according to our buddy in the chat room. Good to see you, Andre. Okay. Well, Rob is, uh, speaking of freaking out, Rob is one of the people freaking out, but not about politics Rather, Rob is freaking about uh, freaking out about pre- presenting his paper at the SBL. He asked if he could have this week off from the Robin Caleb show so that he could uh, take time to research his paper and his uh, uh, and to, to write his paper, which I, I don't believe he's fully done yet, uh, which is a little bit scary, seeing as though we leave next Monday morning for the ETS and SBL. Now, uh, our our art department. The entire department, that's Michael Gonzalez, will be leaving tomorrow. So if you have occasion to pray for him, please go ahead and do so as him and his son, one of his sons, will be traveling down to Texas to visit family before the SBL meeting where we will meet up with him. Okay. Speaking of the ETS and SBL, I guess we'll just jump right in here. No reason not to. Anything you want to say before we get going? Uh, no. All right. Yeah, get up. Good. Good, good. Okay, so uh, my father. Well, uh, there's. Uh, th- let me get the. Uh, let me get the 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 niceties out of the way. First of all, if you're listening, thank you. You can send us email chagatorresource.com. Uh, you can also call our uh, TR radio comment line. That's two five three four six five. 3205. I'll give it to you again. 253-465-3205. Thank you to Miss Draper for uh, leaving me a message. I appreciate getting those messages. Keep them coming from all of you. We like we like messages. Um, and of course, at our programming desk today and keeping us on task is Gary Springer, who also will be uh, traveling with us down to the ETS and SBL. We are very excited for that. Uh, Rob, my father, uh, Gary, and I always just have a very blessed time at these at these meetings. It's a time when we, uh, as a company, are able to reflect on what we're doing, pray together, spend time together, and uh, and evaluate where where the Lord, where we believe the Lord is is uh, taking us. And now that we got Michael on board, it's going to be a good time to be able to do that with him as well. So if you are in the Texas area, uh, we will be in San Antonio uh, on the Riverwalk, and on Thursday night, I believe we will have a meetup. Uh, so if you'd like to come say hi to us and, and, uh, uh, maybe have some food or, uh, have a cup of coffee or something like that, then, uh, I hope you're on our mailing list. Cause if you are, then you will get details about where we will be. And we would love for you to come out and say hi to us. So speaking of the SBL, the society of biblical literature, let's talk about your paper. My father will be presenting on, I believe it's either Sunday or Monday at the society of biblical Liter- literature in San Antonio on the Riverwalk. What is, have you written your paper fully? Uh, yeah, the paper is written, uh, and I'm just proofreading it and making minor uh, edits. Yeah, good. Okay, so tell us. Now, the uh, both Rob and my father are presenting in the same section. Uh, there are many, many, many different sections at the Society of Biblical Literature. Each section um, has many different speakers in it, so they're presenting in the same section, which is the section on Masoretic or the Masoretes or the Masoretic text, and uh, the study of the of the Masoretes. So tell us this. Uh, this is really like uh, most Bible scholars are nerds anyway, which is fine. But this is like uh, 
if you are a Bible scholar, you think the guys in the Masoretic text section are nerds. It's like the nerds of nerds. Um, so tell, t- so it's always very in depth and very, very heady. But I believe that you have a very good, uh, a very good paper to read. Tell us what you're going to read about. Well, before I do that, I just I, I don't know. Maybe you've done this in past uh, radio shows. I'm not sure, but the uh, ETS stands for Evangelical Theological Society, and it is a society of uh, learned. Well, it's a learned society, I should say, and. Um, in order to be a member of the ETS, one has to sign a statement saying that he or she holds to the inerrancy of Scripture as well as to the biblical uh, description of God as Father, as Messiah, as uh, Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit or Ruach HaKodesh, which mm-hmm. every term you're tending to use. And so at least uh, we hold to the idea that members of the ETS uh, consider the scriptures to be the word of God, to be inspired, and to be inerrant, that is, without error, in the original writing. Uh, the, the SBL, or Society of Biblical Literature, is much different in the sense that it is a society of uh, uh, professors, of uh, learned scholars, uh, etc., who have some connection with the Bible. <laughs> some of them may simply be teaching uh, ancient history and using the Bible at times to uh, talk about that. Uh, some may be teaching the Bible as literature. I know that in the years that I've been at the Society of Biblical Literature annual meetings, which uh, dates from, uh, well, at least the middle of the 80s, um, I have met and listened to people who are atheists, uh, those who believe the Bible is simply a man-made uh, a product, uh, they have no religious uh, affiliation with what the Bible is or says. And there are, of course, others. There are evangelicals that are part of the Society of Biblical Literature. But oh, wait, so, wait, wait, hang on. Just it should be noted, though. So uh, we've we've brought this up on the show before, but but let's let's re- revisit this just for a second. So some of the people that you might uh, names that you might recognize that would be at a place like the SBL would be like Bart Ehrman, who uh, has made his career now. Uh, he he took uh, uh, Metzger's chair, uh, and he now uh, is a self-proclaimed atheist who has made his career trying to uh, prove that the apostolic scriptures of the New Testament uh, is is uh, not trustworthy and uh, is is fake. Uh, however, uh, this. Th- what should be noted about someone like, and there are m- more people like Bart Ehrman that attend the SBL. Uh, there's about 13,000 uh, scholars in, in total that attend the SBL. Um, one of the things that should be noted about someone like Bart Ehrman is that he is a, a very good Greek scholar. He knows his Greek very well. So some of the non-believers that you would have at the SBL, even though they don't believe that the Bible is inerrant or that they might not even believe in God, they are doing significant work that actually benefits believers, like translations of the Bible, like commentaries and things like this. Some of them, yes, very liberal, uh, but there are also great archaeologists who are doing great work in archaeology who are not believers. Um, so so the, the thing about uh, the SBL that's different than the ETS is that even though there are, aren't unbelievers, the SBL really is the, uh, it's like the Super Bowl of scholarly events for the year. Okay, keep going. Well, and, and the thing is we get to talk with some of the authors who are writing books that we're actually using or writing parts of books, uh, contributing to books that we're using, not only for our personal study, but also some of the textbooks that we use at Tor Resource Institute have authors in them that have done significant work in languages, uh, archaeology, history, so forth and so on. We may not agree at all with their theology or lack thereof. Sure. But we do find that their uh, the work that they've done uh, in terms of history and uh, languages, linguistics, and so forth is is profitable. So the section that Rob and myself are uh, contributing to in terms of reading papers is called the Masora section. The Masora are the notes that have been collated uh, that were uh, that originate with the Masoretes, the scribes that eventually uh, wrote down the Hebrew Bible as we now have it. And so it's something that's dear to us in the sense that we believe that the Word of God is inerrant, that 
um, the the providence, the good providence of God has maintained the scriptures in such a way as to keep them so that we can trust them. Now, with all of that, as you probably well know, there are variants amongst the various manuscripts. There's many more evidence of manuscript uh, or manuscript evidence for the apostolic scriptures than for the, the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Uh, and so when you compare three or four different manuscripts of the same text, there will be times when different words are used or a word is left out or that kind of a thing. Well, the Masora gives us some indication of the uh, how the, the text was copied and the safeguards that the scribes used to uh, try to make as accurate a copy as possible. And so it's, uh, it's dear to us, as I said, because we believe the scriptures are what God uh, wants us to read, but we have to ask the question, if there are differences between manuscripts, which reading should we take? So that's why we're at the Masora. Now, for the most exciting part of my paper is the title. <laughs> Um, I, you know, I, I'm just rousing you. Actually, these papers, my dad usually presents very good papers at these things, and uh, sometimes they are extremely well attended. Uh, there's been times at the, the very first time I ever went to a paper, sorry to cut you off, but the, the yeah. very first time I ever saw my father uh, present a paper was at the ETS, uh, at one of these meetings, it was at the ETS. Uh, we were in Washington, D.C., and the room was so packed that there were people literally uh, spilling out into the into the uh, into the hallway outside. Uh, and then there's been other times when it's been you know uh, several you know a handful of people here or there. So, uh, but I always think his papers are very good. And actually, I plan on videotaping his lecture and putting it up somewhere, probably on our Vimeo page for everyone to be able to watch if possible. Okay, keep going. All right. So the title is Genesis 18:22, and the Tikkun Sofrim. And the subtitle, Textual, Midrashic, or For What Purpose? Now, I'll try in, in a very short time to explain that title. Okay, Genesis eighteen twenty two, right? Right. Okay. And, and uh, the Tikkun Sofrim, or a Tikkun is a correction or an emendation. Uh, in different rabbinic lists, there are sometimes uh, as few as 11. In other lists, there's as many as 21. The, the settled... Uh, number is 18, that there are 18 times in the whole of the Tanakh, the, uh, or the Old Testament, where the scribes put a note, or I should say the rabbis put a note saying that the scribes changed something in order to guard the holiness of God. And uh, so I, I'm working on Genesis 18.22, which is one of the first uh, in, in the Tanakh, but it only shows up in the lists, in the later lists, between the 5th and the 7th centuries is uh, the time frame that most scholars put it. The bottom line is this. In Genesis 18, if you know that uh, text, we have three men showing up at Abraham's tent, right? So um, it, it starts out by saying that, um, it, excuse me, it starts out by saying that yod heh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, which, uh, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Mm-hmm. And then the next verse says, he lifted up his eyes and saw three men standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet him and bowed himself to the earth. Now, verse 3 is very important because it says in the Hebrew, Yomer Adonai, and that's the first words, and he said, my Lord? No. He said Lord. It's Adonai in the Hebrew text that always stands for yod heh vav Now, the, the, the NASB and some of the other translations are going to uh, uh, wonder if that's correct or not. Well, so that uh, highlights the whole issue of Genesis 18, and it is simply this. Did yod heh vav appear to Abraham along with two other men? Did he appear to Abraham as a man? That's the big issue. And the rabbis uh, say no. They say no, there were three men who were really angels, and this is true. They were angels that, and sometimes angels do show up uh, as men, right? Uh, So uh, the Malach Adonai, the angel of the Lord, shows up sometimes to Manoah and others as... uh, uh, as a man. Okay. So 
But what really bothered the uh, the, the rabbinic uh, authorities is that the Masoretes, the ones who wrote the uh, text down and, and uh, systematize it or standardize it, wrote Adonai in, in chapter three, uh, 18, verse 3 of Genesis, and pointed it or put the vowels in that make it clearly say it is a equivalent name for yod Hey vav Hey. So, did Abraham refer to this man as yod Hey vav Hey? Uh, well, they say no. They say that yod Hey vav Hey appeared as the Shekinah. Now, if you I think everybody knows what the Shekinah, do you think so? Oh, yeah. The Shekinah <laughs> no. glory, we talk about it all the time. Keep going. Okay. As a, uh, a cloud of light or some kind of a appearing of light in front of him, and not in flesh, not in uh, corporeal form, okay? And so then the problem is, now we get down to the verse that I'm working on, in, in verse 22, well, in verse 16, I'm going very quickly, it says the men rose up, you know, the, uh, uh, in between the beginning and this verse 16, <clears throat> uh, yod heh vav says to Abraham, uh, I'm going to return th- at this at the time of life next year, literally, <clears throat> and uh, then uh, Sarah will have a child. And Sarah laughed. And then the conversation goes on, yod heh vav ask Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah denied it. So, no, I didn't laugh. So, you remember that story. Then, after that conversation, verse 16 says, The men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And here's the phrase, And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. So, it appears, if you just read the narrative the way it's written, that the three men began to walk towards Sodom, and and Abraham was walking with them to give them a, a farewell as they went down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and we know what happened when they got there. And then there's this conversation that yod heh vav has. And by the way, in, in verse 17, it the Hebrew text has, uh, well, five times it has yod heh vav in this section. Uh, not Adonai, but yod heh vav the actual word that means the uh, the Holy One of Israel. Okay, yod heh vav And so then he, he begins, uh, yod heh vav begins to have a conversation, we presume, with the other two men. Because he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. So he's talking with those who are with him about Abraham. When he, uh, and then at the end of that conversation, it says, and Yodeh Vave said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. So then verse 22 says, the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before yod heh vav That Now, if we collate that with, and I know I'm hurrying, but I don't want to take up too much time. In 19.1, we say, it, uh, we read, in other words, at, at the next chapter, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was standing in the gate of Sodom. Okay, so wait a minute. How many of the three left, it must have just been two. But isn't your oh. wait? Hang on. But isn't your paper more about the the actual emendation of the of the yes. actual scribal text? Actually, I'm getting to that right now. And the emendation is in verse 22. It says the men of chapter 18, the men turned away from there. We know from chapter 19 that there were just two of them and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before Yodavave. So the third one. The third man, who was yod remained with Abraham for a while before going down to Sodom. And when it says, and Abraham was still standing before yod it sounded too much like, it, it made it too clear, that one of the three men was yod and the rabbis couldn't stand that. So they changed the text, they say the scribes changed the text, while yod was still standing before Abraham. So and that's the te- the, the Tekkenes Sofrim are are one of the reasons that some of these guys in the mess some of these teachers in the Messianic movement say that this that the uh Masoretes actually changed like Lou White, which we were talking about last week, actually changed the Bible, right? Yeah. They they didn't okay, eighteen times out of the, all of the verses in the Tanakh, and then 
there, there were lists that maintained when they changed it and what they changed it from and what they changed it to. My paper, bottom line, is this. I don't think the scribes changed it. And here's why. If we look at the various uh, witnesses to this verse, which would be the Septuagint, okay, the Greek translation, which predates the Masoretic text, the Samaritan Pentateuch, which predates the Masoretic text, Unfortunately, we don't have this verse in Qumran. It's, it's damaged to the point where we can't read it. Um, and uh, the Old Vulgate, which, which predates the Masoretic text, or at least the work of the Masoretes, all of the witnesses that we have of the text uh, that predates when, what the scribes, when the scribes did their work don't have an emendation there. They have the original text as an Abraham Remained standing before Yod Hey Vav Hey. So why would the why would the uh, uh, why would the rabbis say that the scribes changed it? Because they want Yod Hey Vav Hey to be omnipresent. They don't want him to be stationed. They don't want him to be stationary or have a physicality. They want him to have been moving ethereally with Abraham, kind as of the Shekinah, uh, as the Shekinah. So when it says and Abraham remained standing before Yod Hey Vav Hey. They said, no, that makes it sound like this this one he's standing before is, is one of the men. Because, and uh, with this I'll end, uh, the, the uh, Hebrew is very clear when it says in, in verse 22, uh, we could, well, we could translate it literally this way. And the men turned from there and they walked toward Sodom and Abraham was still standing before yod heh vav -Hey. We have a participle uh, there uh, with the uh, word odenu, uh, was still standing. That's the way it should be. And one more comment on 19.1, when it says in 19 that, that um, it says now, the two angels came to Sodom. But if you look at the Hebrew, the, the, the import of the Hebrew is shnei uh, hamalachim, two of the angels or two of the messengers. So it's referring back to the three, and it says two of the three came to Sodom. That makes it a slam dunk that the third man, or the man that uh, uh, Abraham referred to as yod heh vav -Hey, was indeed yod heh vav -Hey. This and that, <clears throat> that is very, very... Now, last thing I do in the paper is I say, well, why would the, why would the rabbis have faked... And excuse me, I don't mean to be pejorative. Why would they have manufactured a uh, an emendation when it wasn't really there? I collated uh, from the second to the fifth centuries the use of this verse uh, or this text, uh, Genesis 18, um, in the church fathers. And they use it regularly as one of their first proofs that, uh, that yod heh vav -Hey came as an incarnate man, which means he was separate from or distinct from the invisible God that no one has ever seen. So they used it not only to, to bolster the uh, biblical view of the incarnation, but they also used it to, uh, to found the idea of a multiplicity in the Godhead. That, I think, was a polemic against the rabbis. The rabbis, therefore, countered by saying, oh, no, no, no. There was a change here that the that the uh, scribes made. You just don't know about it because you don't know you don't know those scribal uh, secrets. And with that, we are going to move on to this is a perfect segue into uh, our questions. And since my father's on, we always do Q and A with my father. And so let's open up the Rob and Caleb show mailbag. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Mail here. Okay, so uh, so with that segue, I think it's a perfect segue. By the way, uh, I hope that whetted uh, your appetite uh, for my father's paper, which hopefully, once again, we will have up, Lord willing, on the Vimeo page sometime after we get back. Okay, so this from uh, Miguel, and Miguel is, uh, he's, <laughs> he, he busts our chops a lot. He, if, uh, if anyone's going to disagree with us on anything, it will definitely be Miguel. He, uh, he seems to be a... 
uh, a, a nice rival to talk to sometimes. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to him a lot, actually. Uh, he he seems to be a, a nice, firm supporter of Monty Judah and uh, some some other interesting things like uh, like the Olaf Tov and th- things like this. Anyway, uh, so this one actually surprised me because uh, I think that he actually asked some very good questions. Last week we talked about... We talked about the uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, and uh, the week before that, we talked about uh, Yeshua as the angel of the Lord, uh, showing up as yod heh vav like in Genesis 18. This is why this is such a good se- segue. Miguel says, I know you say that Yeshua is yod heh vav in the Tanakh. Do you believe that Yeshua is always yod heh vav in the Tanakh? I will answer that and say no, not necessarily. Uh, and- well, okay, we'll talk about that. In, in other okay, and he goes on. In other words, from reading the text, can a distinction be made when it is Yodhevavhe, the Father speaking, and when Yeshua as Yodhevavhe speaking? I know what I would say, uh, and maybe I'll say what I'll uh, what I would say, and then I, uh, you can correct me uh, because that tends to happen most of the time. Uh, so, so <laughs> no, no. my my uh, my thought on this is that when we see a, the uh, angel of the Lord, as we were talking about, or when we say see a physical being show up in an angelic form or something like that uh, to to come and give news. For instance, Joshua uh, bows and worships uh, the angel that comes to him. We have uh, yod heh vav showing up in the text we were just talking about, Genesis 18. When we see the physical presence of, of an angelic being or something like that show up and be yod heh vav referred to as yod heh vav or worshipped or something like this, then I think it is clearly a pre-incarnate Yeshua. Um, and then uh, there are other times when we see things like, uh, well, I think we see the Spirit uh, within, within uh, well, we see the Spirit and the Father, I think. The Father comes in, in uh, Exodus 33. Uh, he, says, uh, he says, no one can see my glory and live, right? And he puts uh, Moses in the cleft of the rock. I believe that would be uh, a, a perfect example of the Father. We see the Spirit come in uh, the pillar of, of smoke by day. And fire by night when uh, leading the the Israelites out of the, out of Egypt, uh, and so I think that we can see a clear distinction. Dad, well, yeah. Well, on the, on your last comment there, uh, we know that um, in Isaiah we have uh, he says the angel of his face led you uh, through. I'm paraphrasing. Led you through the uh, the well. Led you all the days, and so. Uh, Remember that in the Hebrew, we don't have a word for presence. Uh, so when it says, when, when, when Moshe is on the mountain and says, unless your presence goes with us, we don't want to go up out of Egypt, uh, the, the Hebrew word there is face. Face, yeah. yeah. So the, the angel of his presence uh, is one of the terms that Isaiah uses. Um, so the difficulty is when we try to find a nice, clear dividing mark between Father, Son, and Spirit. And I agree, Caleb, obviously, with the fact that when uh, when John says in the opening of his gospel, no one has seen God at any time, he's meaning that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, which he says uh, in, in chapter 4. So, basically, uh, I agree with you that when when yod heh vav appears in a physical form, that is Yeshua. Uh, but uh, the way the question was asked, in other words, uh, well, I'm reading now from Miguel. Uh, in other words, from reading the text, can a distinction made uh, be made when it is yod heh vav the Father speaking, and when is Yeshua as yod heh vav speaking? When Yeshua speaks, he speaks the very th- things that the Father would speak. Sure, yeah. And when the Father speaks, he sp- he speaks the things that Yeshua would speak. In and fact, this is, and this is the mystery of the Trinity. Yeah, right. This is the mystery of the of the plurality and the Godhead, the Trinity, if if we want to use that term, which is fine. I have no problem with it. Um, so, but whenever we the point that is made is that Yeshua uh, was uh, predestined. The providence of God had it from all eternity that he would send his son and he would send his son in the form of a man. Now, that happened at the time of, of his birth in Bethlehem. Uh, and But what was different there, as opposed to what we find in these pre-theophanies uh, uh, or uh, Christological appearances, if we want to use that term, in the Tanakh, is that 
when Yeshua came in the mystery of the incarnation, when he came as a babe in Bethlehem, born through the woman Miriam as a virgin, he, from that point on, through the rest of eternity, retains his, his uh, form of a man. Paul says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Messiah Yeshua. That's the mystery. And even the greater mystery is this, and we shouldn't lose sight of this, that God would love sinners yeah, yeah. In, in terms of sending his son. And Paul makes a big point of this, doesn't he? He says, this is love, <laughs> that God sent his son, mm. all right? You know, and even though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his riches we might be rich even though impoverished through his riches. So the, the real mystery is why would God do that? <laughs> Did he need to do that? No. Did he need anything? No. Was he, we have to say was, but is he not in all time, in eternity, fully uh, uh, joyous, fully content, fully uh, satisfied in all that he is? Yes, because he's infinite in all of his attributes. He didn't need anything. So why did he send his son, Yeshua, to die for us, to take upon himself the, the, the woes of this world? And even to become like us in terms of being a man. No one can explain that. <laughs> no one can explain it. And uh, the, the, in fact, when we try to explain it down to the very uh, rationale that we can wrap our minds around, we ruin it. And mm. this, is, this is always what happens when people try to explain uh, the Father, the Son, uh, the Spirit, and try to explain exactly how each of them are different and so forth and so on. Well, there is clearly the distinctions. When Yeshua prayed in the garden, he prayed to the Father and he said, not my will, but your will be done. So there we have the enigma. And so, you know, that, that's what I would say to, to Miguel, uh, that yes, we affirm the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as having a distinct, uh, what shall we say, role, a distinction, and yet we affirm without hesitation that there is one God and only one God, and the Father is not a third, and the Son a third, and the Spirit a third. They, they, they are fully, they, that is, God is fully who he is in the manifestation of his plurality. So, uh, Miguel goes on, he says, you seem to teach a belief in the Trinity doctrine that cannot be found in the Tanakh. I would Strongly disagree with that. Um, yes. But he, he goes on, I hear the examples of scriptures you give, but you neglect to mention Revelation 4, 4, 5, which mentions the seven spirits of God. To which of those seven spirits is Paul referring to? And which of those seven spirits is the helper that came after Yeshua? I'm not mocking, but merely trying to prove. He goes on, uh, so on and so forth. In other words, the Father and the Son are absolute. The Spirit or seven spirits have their purpose. Okay, so... Uh, and I have not gotten to, I didn't pull this up, but uh, would you like to respond to that? Sure. Um, well, first of all, uh, we have to remind ourselves that the scriptures are written in the language of men. And we have uh, a handful of the scriptures, books of the, uh, that are within the Bible, that are apocalyptic in the way that they speak. And the one that is clearly apocalyptic in the apostolic scriptures is the book of Revelation. When you come into a different genre, this is not a letter that's being written to, like, Paul's epistles. This is not a gospel like one of our gospels or the book of Acts that is outlining the, the history of, uh, of taking the, the gospel into the nations. Uh, no, this is apocalyptic. And what does apocalyptic literature do? It uses all kinds of imaginative figures to explain itself. And the apocalyptic uh, genre was quite popular in the time of the end of the first century and even uh, numbers of centuries before. I mean, we find the apocalyptic literature coming to its own uh, during this time. So uh, I'll just say this. There are four times, not just Revelation 4-5, there are four times when we have 
the term seven spirits in the book of Revelation. It says in the opening chapter, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, who would that be? If we read the rest of the book of Revelation, that's a description of the Holy One, but it's also a description of Yeshua. And and he goes on in that verse to say, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, here they're before his throne, okay? Uh, Then Revelation 3, 1. The angel of the church of Sardis write, or we could say messenger, because, of course, it is the same term, both in the Hebrew and the Greek could either be angel or messenger. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Wait a minute. Seven spirits of God are paralleled with seven stars. He says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So once again, the one that's speaking must be God. And Revelation 4, 5 says, Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. There's seven lamps, which represent the seven spirits of God. And finally, in chapter 5, verse 6 of Revelation, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So wait a minute. The seven spirits of God are the eyes of the lamb. What do we have here? In apocalyptic literature, very, very often, numbers are used to give emphasis. And we know that seven is a number that is used in Semitic as well as in the apocalyptic literature to mean complete, full. And in this case, I think it's very clear that it means that the one who is the lamb, who stands, who knows the hearts of people, he has the absolute, full, complete, infinite power and assistance of the Spirit of God to do his work. What did he say to the disciples before he left? He said, I will send you another comforter, another paraclete, and he will lead you, and he will bring to your memory, and so forth. In other words, the metaphor in the apocalyptic literature here of Revelation is that the seven spirits means the full power of the Spirit. Everything that the Spirit intends to do and is sent to do will come to fruition, will be accomplished, and and John writes it with that in mind when he keeps he keeps using seven. And if you look at seven throughout the book of Revelation, there's so many sevens you can't believe it. And it's talking about the, the completion, the fullness of the work of God in each of these areas. Okay, let's move on now. We have another uh, comment. This was on our YouTube uh, a YouTube comment. Uh, the person says, I have a question regarding calling anyone teacher or rabbi. If we take Yeshua's teaching in Matthew 23, 7, and conclude then to never call anyone rabbi, then are we also not to call anyone father or master, as in, uh, as in uh, prescribed in Matthew 23:10? Are we not to call our earthly dads father, or are we not to call our earthly bosses master? And uh, my father and I have both written uh, and, and taught on this, but I will give the floor to you, sir. Well, as you say, I, I did deliver a paper at the ETS meeting some years ago uh, entitled the – what is it entitled? I have it here in front of me because I can't even remember my title. Uh, it is the term rabbi in the Gospels. Uh, and I, I, I did uh, the research on this at least enough to satisfy myself. Uh, short answer is this. We know that the word rabbi was in the process of being uh, – well – in the Gospels, a number of times when the term rabbi is used, the writer of the Gospel goes on to say, which means teacher. Originally, uh, Rav, uh, Ravi, and by the way, the word Rav is only used uh, when they went to Babylon. So those who refer to themselves as Rav apparently uh, have some or- origin in Babyl- Babylonia. But um, so, and, and that's why it's, uh, it's uh, anachronistic or I don't know what you would say, uh, wrong to refer to Paul as Rav Shaul. Uh, he's never referred to that uh, in, in the scriptures. But anyway, so uh, we know if we look at the Gospels, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, the only people that refer uh, from Matthew's writings, the only people that refer to Yeshua as rabbi are his enemies, including Judas. And if you look to see in the synoptics, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
and you see where, say, Mark or Luke uses the word rabbi, you look back in the other two, and you'll see that sometimes a different word is being used. Sometimes kurios, Lord, rather than rabbi, uh, and sometimes uh, a teacher. Uh, so it's only John who begins to use rabbi in a very positive way uh, throughout his uh, his gospel. That's interesting because I take the view that John's gospel was written later. Sure. What was happening? And we know this, we can see this when we, when we read, uh, well, at least sometimes we have to read between the lines, but when we read the rabbinic literature, if we take the Mishnah or even the, uh, the Midrashim, Sifrei uh, and Makilta and so forth as earlier, maybe uh, Midrash Rabbah, Brashit, Genesis, as an earlier strata, we begin to see that rabbi is, be- is being used more and more for an authoritative teacher with whom you do not disagree. I mean, Hillel and Shammai are never called rabbi. They're always called elders. So that they were earlier. As you come through the rabbinic literature, you see rabbi takes on a, a, a authoritative title. And guess what? So did father. Yeah. With the Av, Christian church. Uh, yeah. As well. Av, Av and Abba took on uh, uh, authoritative. So and uh, th- thanks for uh, uh, putting that in, uh, Caleb, because... The Christian church took some of these terms and applied them to their own leaders. Why? Tit for tat. You think your leaders, you Jewish people, have all the answers? No, we've got leaders that are equal to them. They have the same title and so forth. And I think that movement from just a word meaning teacher to meaning an authority that you dare not disagree with or dare not disagree with in in front of him, (laughs) Um, I think that movement of the term was happening in the time of Yeshua, which is why in Matthew 23, he says, don't you let, and it doesn't say don't call yourself rabbi. He says, don't let anyone else call you rabbi. And the same thing was with father. There's an interesting, now I know Perkeavot is late, but there's an interesting uh, interchange in Perkeavot, and it is this, if, uh, I believe it's Perkeavot, I would have to check that, but it says if, uh, and, and they always give these scenarios, if you, being a student, are walking with your earthly father, the one that gave you life, and with your teacher, and both of them drop something at the same time, which one should you pick up first? And the answer is, you should pick up the thing that was dropped by your teacher first, for he is giving you spiritual life where your father only gave you physical life. You see, the idea of an authority being transferred from a father, an earthly father, a dad, to your teacher is something that's going on in the rabbinic literature. This is what Yeshua spoke against. Is it wrong to call your earthly dad fathers? Can we say Father's Day? No. I mean, yes, we can say that. No problem. Why? Because the word father in that context does not take on the connotation of someone that I revere and I don't ever disagree with and I whatever he says I believe. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, there are some uh, people who would say, Father such and such, uh, you know, is if he says it, it's right. Oh, we see that we, we even see this in, with, uh, yeah. with some of the scandals that have happened with the uh, with priests throughout the years where the people felt like they weren't allowed to go against the priest and the priest, you know, the father. Right. And uh, and this is why uh, these people were able to take advantage and, of, of and other people. We can see that happening in the rabbinic literature where the later rabbinic literature does everything it can to take two rabbis that disagreed and make them say they didn't really disagree, they were talking about different things, so forth and so on. Why? Because you never want to say a rabbi is wrong. Why? Bottom line. Because the oral traditions of the rabbis began to be put on equal or greater value and importance and authority than the written. And if you say that the rabbis are wrong, you've lost your touch with authority. And so this is what Yeshua is uh, talking against and warning us against, uh, in Matthew 23. Okay, uh, John, who is actually in our chat room right now, he writes in, he says, to what extent should we expect linguistic and or historical cultural training? Since we strive to understand the scriptures from a historical, grammatical, con- contextual framework, would training be necessary? Academic tra- training doesn't seem to be delineated in the leadership requirements of the apostolic writings, but was an understanding of this ability implied? Well, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, it is implied. It's even more than implied. In First Timothy 3, in the uh, qualifications for uh, an overseer, 
what does it say? He must be able to teach. It says, and I'm reading here from 1 Timothy 3, 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Okay, so if you're able to teach, what does that mean? It means that you have the tools that will help you do so. Now, does that mean every teacher needs to have an academic degree behind his name? No. Does it mean that we can have teachers that are giving us very good teaching uh, from their own life experience as it relates to the scriptures and so forth? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what are they using? They're using a Bible that is translated into their language. In, you know, if they let's presume at this moment that they're not uh, conversant or able to use the Hebrew, the Greek, the Aramaic, they haven't learned that. They're using a Bible that has been put together by scholars who can read those languages and have dedicated their lives to it. So if you say, "Well, I don't need to be, I don't need to be uh, educated because they were educated," okay, in some ways I agree with you, but in another way, if we're going to teach people, this is what the Bible says. We ought to be able at least to check to see if the translations we're using are accurate. So I, I just think... And, that, and that, doesn't, that doesn't mean with Strong's numbers. Oh, please. Uh, well, <laughs> if, if someone just reads the preface to Strong's Concordance, they will understand what he did there. He did a nice service, but it it's, it's, has definite parameters. I mean, I asked this question. This is one that came to me when I was in college. If I went in and I needed into a doctor, and I knew that I needed a delicate surgery done on my eye, and I said, I, you know, my eye is clouding over, I need surgery. And he says, oh, I've got, I've got a guy that, uh, you know, he's never gone to school, he's, he's just self-trained, but he has been working with knives forever, and he does really well with wood carving, he does really well with peeling apples, and I'm sure he can help you with your eye. I would say not a chance. I want someone who has dedicated themselves through hard labor and through listening to those who are experts already in the field in which he is being trained. I want him or her to know the tools, and I want that person to work on my eye. And so, so shouldn't we hold the same value to the Word of God? And again, I'm not putting down anyone who teaches out of a heart of love and out of a heart of love for God and a love for his people and is doing the best he or she can do to uh, open up the Word of God and make it plain and clear to the students. I'm not putting anyone down for that. I'm just saying that within a community, there ought to be those that one can go to and say, could you read this Hebrew for me? Could you read this Greek or this Aramaic for me? Could you tell me uh, what you think about it? And so forth and so on. And uh, I think that's, that is necessary for communities, and I hope that more and more uh, communities have such people in them. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, uh, let's move on. This is going to take a l very little bit of explanation. This from a, a lady named Maureen. She has written back and forth with us. She uh, was not too fond of, of Andre's uh, video, <clears throat> which we put up, which is a student video. And uh, Andre looks at um, at two Babylons by uh, Hislop, and uh, within his lecture, and tries to explain. He's in the chat room, by the way. Uh, he tries to explain why uh, Hislop has made some major, major missteps, and that's been proven. I keep saying it's been proven by good scholars. <clears throat> Uh, Maureen took offense to this and uh, because she very much uh, feels a connection and uh, has found some things, uh, found some good things uh, from two Babylons. Uh, and so she took offense to this. And so she's challenged our views. Actually, the other day she sent me an article by F.F. F. Bruce uh, in which F.F. F. Bruce himself even says that, uh, that uh, two Babylons has horrible missteps in it and that uh, Hislop basically i don't i don't know if she maybe uh skipped this part or something and, and didn't see it but uh, uh f f bruce a wonderful scholar basically says the same thing that we've been saying uh so she she wants to uh, uh challenge this again she uh, and uh, i think specifically to you dad because uh she i believe respects your opinion so she says what is the connection between nimrod tammuz and the queen of heaven and who or what is the mystery babylon of revelation that we are commanded 
to come out of. And of course, Hislop takes this to be what uh, the Catholic Church, I believe, correct? Uh, I thankfully uh, have only read uh, uh, portions of Hislop's book because it is, uh, it, yeah, it's it's very difficult for me to read. Anyway, keep going. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, first of all, uh, as you noted, Caleb, and I did also read uh, uh, most of the article by FF F. F. Bruce, which was a very good article. He he makes it very clear the etymological connections that Hislop make have been uh, disproven in the last three centuries. Uh, and and uh, the, one of the fallacies, one of the logical fallacies that Hislop makes is simply this: that if it ha- if two things have commonality, they have common origin, and that that is a clear uh, logical fallacy. Okay, so. Just because the grass is green and frogs are green doesn't mean they have a common origin, you know, as a, to- a typical logical fallacy. Okay, but uh, what uh, what FFOZ, uh, excuse me, what FF Bruce did uh, was to show that there are clear, significant, and uh, damaging errors in Hislop, and one should be aware of those. The other thing he did was to say, we have a commonality as a fallen human race. Not simply that it stems from Nimrod and and so forth and so on and the mystery of Babylon. Remember, Babylon, the term Babylon is used in the apostolic scriptures as a, uh, what should I say, as a sigla, as a secret way of talking about Rome. You know, when, uh, when it says those in Babylon greet you, he's not talking about Babylon of old with Nimrod and so forth and so on. Uh, and, and he's using it because to go against Rome would have been uh, dangerous for one's head. So um, th- that's, the, that's the first thing. The second thing is, is, as I said, that what is the commonality that fallen human race has? The fallen human race wants to make God in our image. Because we were created in him, his image and rebelling against him, we say, no, we want God to be like us. We don't want to become like him. We, we need him to be like us. And so idolatry is at the heart of the fallen nature. Now, some would say, well, I'm not an idolater, but I'm an atheist. Well, then you are an idolater because you just took to yourself the authority that belongs to God. You worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Is that what Nimrod did? Yes. And one might say, and you can look and see in, in that article by F.F. F. Bruce, and I don't know uh, if there are others who want it, we can put that in the chat room where you can find it. Um, he does, at the end of his uh, article, uh, talk and say, listen, there, there is a connection. There is a connection between Nimrod and, uh, he would say, you know, errant theology and errant churches and so forth and so on. But it's a connection not by way of sociological uh, historical connection with Nimrod and Babylon and all of that, as much as it is a connection to the outflow of the sinful heart, the wayward heart of mankind. And that wasn't what Hislop was talking about. He was trying to say, uh, uh, this is a, uh, a religion that continues to pop up all over the place. Well, it does so, and F.F. Uh, F. Bruce would agree with that, it does so, but it does so not because it has clear attachment to Nimrod by way of etymology, by way of uh, heredity, and so forth and so on, but simply because it is the outflow of the fallen, depraved heart of man to worship the creation rather than the creator. And when that idolatry comes in, then it gives fruit to all kinds of other bad fruit. It gives seed to all kinds of other bad fruit, I should say. Okay, I hope that uh, answers that question. Uh, we will have time for, let's do what, one more? Well, we have two more. Um, Shard says, Yom Teruah 2017 Revelation 12 sign is being talked about in some circles. What's your take on it? I think he means that uh, that Yom Teruah 2017, some groups are saying that uh, this is going to be the sign of Revelation 12. Yeah. Well, one of the uh, primary issues uh, that we have in, in the whole area of hermeneutics, or how we interpret the Bible, is to interpret according to its historical grammatical interpretation, right? Okay? 
Well, when we start out in Revelation 12, it says a great sign appeared in heaven. It doesn't say will appear in heaven. <laughs> a great sign appeared in heaven. Okay, so he could still be talking about the future. It's apocalyptic. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, she might devour, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now we could go on and on with all this imagery as John does, but it's very interesting because who is the woman? That's the primary issue. The Some of the early church fathers took it to be Miriam, took it to be the Virgin Mary giving birth to Yeshua. Uh, but it doesn't seem to, to make sense uh, insofar as, therefore, the woman goes into the wilderness and so forth and so on. Uh, that didn't happen with Miriam. Uh, and I think the better interpretation, uh, and there are uh, current scholars who take this, evangelical scholars, that the woman is the remnant. Did the remnant of Israel in every generation, I should say, the remnant of Israel in every generation, at one point the remnant of Israel had Miriam, and she gave birth to this child, but it's the remnant. And what happened when Yeshua came, when he died, he rose, he ascended? Was there a, an increasing uh, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, anti-Jewish, uh, anti-Israel perspective in the emerging uh, Christian church? Absolutely. And uh, would we have to say that the whole Christian church then is the, is the uh, dragon? No. But we would say the spirit of the enemy the demons, the devils, would do everything they could to war against the remnant. And the remnant is always within, at least in some sense, with a theological sense, within the larger uh, body of Israel, that is within the olive tree into which they are grafted or remain in the olive tree. And so what are these signs in heaven? In apocalyptic uh, literature, it just means that it's a, it's a battle that's going on in the heavenlies. Isn't that what Paul says? He says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What is it against? Principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in heavenly places. There's a war going on in the heavenly places. And uh, does it sometimes enter into our world? Absolutely. Okay, so that's the whole picture. We're not looking to some kind of a red moon or some kind of a, an eclipse or something as proof that now this final phase of the book of Revelation has begun. No, that's not what this means. It means that there, was, that there is war in heaven, but ultimately, where does it go? And this is the wonderful thing about John's revelation. It, who gets the victory? <laughs> yeah. And see, if you go down in verse 7, it says, and there was war in heaven. So this is the exact same context. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And so you, you have this apocalyptic war that's going on, but in this case, in, in Revelation 12, it's taking place in the heavenlies. It affects the earth, but it's taking place in the heavenlies, and I don't think it's, it's time-bound as much as it has always been the case, and maybe heightened, with the victory that Yeshua had uh, over death in his resurrection, and now the remnant, the continuing growing people of God from every nation, from every tribe, from every kindred, from every tongue, is proof of the victory that God is winning in this war, and that bothers the enemy more than anything. Mm -hmm. Okay, we got one more question. This one can be very quick, too, because uh, I think that we have enough... Uh, I think that someone who teaches better than us on this subject, uh, we we uh, provide their DVDs on our website. Um, but uh, David, uh, a, a personal friend of mine, says, what about the doctrine of creation? How should Genesis 1 be interpreted? What is your take on young earth versus old earth creationism? Now, I will, I'll, I'll start just by saying I believe that all of the staff at Torah Resource is uh, is 
a young earth creationism. And uh, I would also say that uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't good, great scholars uh, who, who disagree with us. And uh, Walter Kaiser, whom we use for our, uh, we use his, his work for our her- hermeneutics class. He is an old earth uh, believer, but uh, he certainly is a good scholar nonetheless. Um, but I personally would refer anyone who wants to know about young earth creationism why we believe it, I would refer you to Spike Pissaris's or Spiros Pissaris uh, and his three DVDs that we currently sell on TorahResource.com. They are excellent, excellent, and uh, each one of them gives significant proof in my mind that uh, that the Earth is young and not old. And do, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I th- uh, what, what uh, uh, Spike does uh, is he shows us that people have not People who, especially theologians who hold to an old earth, are accepting without the ability, perhaps, to critique the uh, geological uh, evolutionary uh, so-called science that is out there. And he does a very good job at showing that much of the so-called geological evidence, uh, fossil evidence, and so forth that undermines or, excuse me, that they take to be foundational for evolutionary theory— is really misinterpreted, misunderstood, and is very soft science, okay? So just as a quick example, I've talked with uh, someone who, a friend of mine, uh, he teaches at a local university here, and he, he teaches geology. And um, I, you know, I asked him, I said, what do you do when you find fossils that are supposed to be in a very low strata uh, up on top of mountains? And he says, well, we call that an inversion. I said, what caused the inversion? He said, we're not sure. And so, well, we know, we know there was a flood over the whole earth, and so forth and so on. But they they take those things which are contrary to their theory, and they say, and it's an, an exception we can't explain, and they go on. Well, okay, back to the main question. You know, I just have two things. Do we believe that in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh He ceased from creating? The word "ceased" is Shabbat, right? Okay, so. In Exodus 20, it says, you, you, shall honor, you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Why? Because on six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh, he rested. He stopped. Well, did he? Did he do that? And some would say, well, he started the creation process. That's not what it says. Go read Genesis 1. He created, he filled the waters, he filled the, the air, he, he, he made the, the fowl, he, he uh, put animals on the dry land, he, he created man, so forth and so on. The idea that this all took billions of years or millions and millions of years undermines the very fact of the Sabbath. That would be the first thing. The second thing is, if you dismiss one miracle because it doesn't make sense because of so-called science, then you dismiss all the miracles. Here's the question. Did, was Yeshua put up on the cross, and did he die a human death on the cross? Was he put into the grave? Was he put into the tomb? Yes. Did he uh, come to life? Did he raise from the dead on the third day? The answer is yes. More than 500 eyewitnesses, John, Peter, uh, being some of them, James, they wrote it down. Okay. If Yeshua rose from the dead. Why is it so difficult for us to believe God spoke and there was light? God said, let there be this, and it was formed. Why is that a more significant uh, a miracle than the, the, the resurrection? So the bottom line is this. People are giving up on the account as given in the first two chapters of Genesis because they are being told and they're believing that good, solid science has proven otherwise. What Spike does in his uh, DVDs, what many of the young earth uh, uh, people do who are scientists show, no. The science that so the, that uh, supposedly proves an evolutionary model is soft in so many of its ways that it cannot be trusted. All right. I hope that answers everybody's questions. Next week, we're taking the week off because we will be uh, down in uh, San Antonio. However, I hope, I think we might try to record 
a Rob and Caleb show down in San Antonio. So the day before Thanksgiving, you'll have a new show. It won't be live, so there will be no chat room, but you will be able to listen to it live. And then uh, I'm not sure if we'll videotape it. We'll probably try to. If we videotape it, then you will also be able to see the video on YouTube as well. Uh, that would be two weeks from today, uh, the day before Thanksgiving. So, um, uh, next week we will have a rerun, but uh, please be in prayer for us as we travel and are away from our families for a long time. Uh, you will be able to still see updates on the of things going on and what we're doing at the ETS and SBL meeting. You'll be able to see updates of that on our homepage on the news and, and articles uh, uh, feed there uh, at TorahResource.com. You'll also be able to, it's the exact same feed as in our news and updates section which is uh, under one of the tabs. <laughs> I should know what tab it is. Uh, it's a new t- it's it's a new section that we have on Tor Resource. Hang on, I'll get it for you here. Uh, if you go to Tor Resource and then you hover over other resources, then the top tab, the top uh, the first choice there is news and updates. Uh, so you can either go to there or just our homepage, torresource.com. You'll be able to see updates of us at the ETS and, and SBL probably on a daily basis, unless we just get too overwhelmed, which certainly could happen. Um, is there anything else you want to say before we take off, Dad? Well, only that I appreciate the opportunity to uh, make comments on these questions, and I hope that uh that what we've done here is helpful. So we will uh, try to record something in, in uh, during the ETS and SBL with the entire staff. And uh, if you would like to, if there's a, a topic that you would like the entire staff to uh, touch on, please uh, go ahead and send me that in an email. Don't forget that you can also um, you can also leave us a message, and you can do that by calling our TR Radio comment line. That is two five three four six five. 3205. I'll give it to you again. It's 253-465-3205. You can call and leave a message there. And you can also send us an email. C-H-E-G-G H-E-G-G is Hag. So C-H-E-G at TorahResource.com. That's C-H-E-G at TorahResource.com. And we leave next Monday morning. Uh, so please be in prayer as we travel. We'll try to keep updates on our homepage, TorahResource.com. And then we will be back with you two weeks from today, which is the day before Thanksgiving. And we hope that we will learn a whole lot down at the ETS and SBL, things that honor our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah.